Well, doesn't December go by quickly? Here we are, almost at Christmas. I know some of you are thinking something right now. You're thinking, why, oh, why did I agree to host Christmas dinner? <laughs> Others might be thinking, why, oh, why did I agree to preach on Christmas Eve? <laughs> but here we are, what a joyous time. I suspect that the Christmas preparations in our homes are going to be very similar. The traditions are slightly different, but they're all revolving around family, around a meal. They revolve around friends and gifts, celebrations, decorations, special baking. This truly is the most wonderful time of the year. Except, except that it's also the loneliest time of year and the saddest time of year. Because Christmas is a time when we all of a sudden realize that life is not exactly how it, we want it to be. It's not how we, it should be. And life, when you see everyone else celebrating, if you're alone, that's when you really notice it. It's when you really notice the missing places at the table, family members who couldn't make it home, friends and loved ones who have passed on. So Christmas can be also tragically sad. So sometimes Christmas seems maybe like that famous uh, story, the history story of, of uh, in the trenches of World War I, that first Christmas, when both sides on, on Christmas had an impromptu truce. It was unplanned. The officers ne didn't necessarily agree with it, but they, they stopped fighting. They met in no man's land. They shared games. They shared gifts. They sang carols. They played a game of soccer. And it's Christmas like that, just in the midst of all this trouble, we've got a time of peace and harmony when just for one day, just for one day, things are as it should be. I think to fully understand Christmas and its importance, we need to have both uh, views and focus. So imagine if you can, I, I don't know how you're gonna do it, but I've sort of got, I can't describe it. Imagine everything wrong in the world over here. Not like over here, what's wrong? Over here, imagine it. All the war that's going on, all the fighting, the violence, the people who are hungry, the loved ones who've gone, all the hurt, all the sadness, everything that you can imagine, the opioid crisis, everything that is wrong in the world. Just imagine a massive wall of whatever depiction. And then over here, we can imagine a tiny baby in a manger. And to understand Christmas, we have to understand that this baby overcomes everything here. That this baby, the story of this baby, is greater than the story of what's on this side. Of course, the story of Jesus, it's, it's almost comic by certain standards. Like, what sort of king, we call him king, but what sort of king is born in a manger? Kings celebrate their noble heritage. Jesus is marred by rumors of illegitimacy. He's chased, his family is chased away by some um, puppet dictator in the backwoods of an empire. When he grows up, he grows up as a working man. His followers have sunburnt faces and callous hands. They're, just, they're not noble birth. Kings live in palaces. Jesus had no home, 
no place to rest his head. And any time there are some sorts of uh, royal symbols, it's either a joke, or it's, it's like a joke, or it is a joke. When kings do noble entrances into cities, they ride on their battle steeds in power with all their armies behind them to show their might and strength. When Jesus rode into the city triumphantly, he rode on a baby horse. The only time he had a robe, uh, a robe and a crown, it was a form of mockery. So I ask again, actually I don't think I asked the first time, I think I missed that, but I ask, what relevance does this baby have in our world? Several centuries before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote some amazing literature. I know it well because it's one of my Christmas traditions every year to listen to Handel's Messiah, and I just love it. And the words of Isaiah were put to music. Comfort, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. Um, and him who tellest good tidings to Zion, say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And then how does this God show up? He shall lead his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather his lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom. And he shall gently lead those who are with young. Centuries later, Jesus took up this image of the good shepherd and most famously, he used it in the, sh the parable of the, the good shepherd and the, the lost sheep. And this parable, this parable tells us that the individual, the particular, even if it's the prodigal, the one who's gone astray, the one who's left, this person matters to God. The good shepherd goes out and seeks the lost. So we know through this parable how important each one of us is as an individual. And because of Christmas, because of Christmas, we know just how far the Good Shepherd is willing to go to rescue his sheep. When I was about 13 years old, I remember walking through the mall one day and I saw a booth with some rings and there was a ring with a Nike swoosh on it. And instantly, I wanted that ring. I didn't have the money to buy it. But I thought about it as time went on. And then, I don't know if it was a few weeks later or a month later, I was back at the mall, and this time I had my money, and I plopped down my $20, and I bought this ring with a Nike swoosh. And as soon as I put it on, I knew that it was a mistake. Because I didn't actually want a Nike ring. I wanted the kids to like me. I wanted to be cool, I wanted to be accepted. Now I am probably the only person in this room who's bought a Nike ring. <laughs> but we've all bought something. We've all done something, we've all striven in certain ways, our feelings of inadequacy, to somehow fill this hole. Maybe it's the schools we go to, maybe it's the jobs we go, the car we drive, whatever it is, we are trying to desperately fill this void. And Christmas tells us, we don't have to strive because God loves us. God loves us. The King of Kings loves us.
the little baby in the manger, he looks nothing like a king. And so maybe it shouldn't surprise us that when he talked about his kingdom, it was nothing like the kingdom that we, uh, we recognize. It's nothing like the kingdoms of the world. What he taught was the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of the seeds, but when it grows up, it is such a mighty tree that the birds of the air come and land in its branches. Or it's like a bit of yeast, and you put it in the dough and it leavens the whole loaf. At Christmas, we celebrate that the kingdom of God is here. I have struggled with this part. I wanted to develop the ideas, but no matter how it went, it's, it's just too big a subject. It's too, I'm going to make bold claims, and I can't back them up without time, in the, the time allotted. But I want to argue that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that, he, that Jesus preached about, it is here, and it is present, and it is so real. We don't see it because it's everywhere. The historian Tom Holland wrote a whole book on this. He's, he wasn't a Christian when he wrote this book. But he just wrote this book, Dominion, which details the ways in which if you were to go back in antiquity into the world that Jesus was born into, it would be completely foreign to you. I went off script here, and so I'm trying to decide how best to continue. Jesus preached, Hear, O Israel, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He preached, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. There have been many kings throughout history who created many laws, but none, none created a law like this. Jesus summed up his whole kingdom in these two rules, love God and love your neighbor. G.K. Chesterton quipped, God tells us to love, uh, love our neighbor and to love our enemy, probably because they're generally the same people. We don't do it well. It's imperfect everywhere. But everywhere, this ethic, it, it has been put into practice and it's taken hold. You can see it. Like I said, if, if you want to dig deeper, there's uh, Tom Holland's book is all about this. But you can go downtown I rem um, to the hospitals, to homeless shelters, everywhere. There's this idea of caring for, your, uh, for the weak, for the oppressed. When we see, when we see the critiques of, um, when we see the critiques of the men in power who take advantage of their positions of power, yes, it still happens. The kingdom of God hasn't overcome this, but the critique would not have occurred without Jesus. At the heart of the gospel, is this feeling, or this, sorry, this, this belief, this teaching that human beings, individuals, have intrinsic worth. And when this belief is put into practice, this has power. This has power. I remember a friend of mine t telling me about when she went on a missions trip to a country where the gospel had not been historically taken part. It was a poor country. She went on a medical team. And... She went to these villages that, where there was never any doctors. And so her medical team goes there to see people who are sick that would otherwise never have seen a doctor. And it took a long time because before she could see the sick, they would have to see the healthy. Because 
in that community, the, the sick don't have value. It's the strong who have value. They get to see the doctors first, the men, and maybe the healthy women, children, and then last of all, the sick. The gospel has taken root. And you can see it. You can see it powerfully if you, if you keep your eyes open for it. I remember I watched uh, recently, rewatched a documentary about a man named Daryl Davis. Maybe you have, some of you have seen it. He's done a TED Talk, and he's a black musician. And he grew up, and we all know about how oppressive racism is and how entrenched it can be. We don't maybe know it personally, but we, we, we know it's here. Well, when he first experienced racism, he didn't understand it, and so he got curious. And he started meeting with, with KKK members because he wanted to know, well, how could you hate me? You don't even know me. So what happens when this black man meets with a bunch of racists who hate him? And instead of returning that hatred with hate, he returns it with respect and care. Well, I'll tell you what happens, a miracle. There are dozens of KKK members who have given up their robes. They've give, put away their uh, membership and they move beyond because they, they don't want that hate anymore. There's several stories he tells, but one of the most powerful is about he, he met this, the head, the national head of the KKK, and he talked with him, interacted with him, got to know him by name, and treated him with respect. And what happened is, this, this leader, this racist leader of the KKK invited Daryl to his wedding as a guest. And not just any guest, the bride's father couldn't make it to the wedding, and so they asked Daryl, to walk the bride down the aisle. I'm a fan of uh, the author Chris Voss. Maybe some of you know him. He's a, a former hostage negotiator. Now he's an author and he teaches negotiation. Worked for the FBI. And what does he talk about? What is this tool that they have when they want to combat, in a sense, these uh, hostage takers? psychopaths, all sorts of bad guys, the enemy, they employ something he calls tactical empathy. It's about making sure you see from the other person's, your enemy's point of view. You want to see from their point of view. You want to understand what they're going through. You want to relate to them. You want to respect them. You don't have to agree with what they're saying, but you respect them. And he said that this has the power to just erase the hostilities if they want to free the captives, their first job is to learn or to, to let the, uh, the hostage taker know that they sympathize with their position. You can look into the, uh, the work of Gandhi, into Martin Luther King Jr., into the peace and reconciliation that was done in South Africa or Ireland, uh, Rwanda, all these places where there's entrenched hatred. We don't do it perfectly, but where the gospel, where this ethic of kindness and loving your enemy is putting into place, miracles happen. Now, I would argue that, that uh, none of these people truly, well, when I say none, the, the example of Daryl and, and Chris Voss and, and the others, they didn't necessarily love their enemy, but they certainly respected him. So how much more, how much more if we put to work this ethic that God teaches us, this love your enemy, what would happen if we put that to work 
And how much more if we put it to work in our homes, in our businesses? Here, he can come up for a second. I was just going to tell a story about my son, Ethan, so I'll use a prop. Good timing. So he recently celebrated the second birthday of uh, our son, Ethan, in October. And uh, we had a bunch of guests, and uh, there was the games for the kids and, and uh, snacks and, and goodies. And then finally it came time to, uh, to have the birthday cake. So we lit the candles, and, uh, and I held Ethan like this, and there's a, and Jeanette beside me. And then everyone, all our friends, they were there, and they were singing, happy birthday, happy birthday to you. And I, I was just, I was just overcome. Because I love this boy so much. Anyway, I, I could have caught by without the prop, I think. But if, uh, like, without the emotion. But anyway, I, just to see everyone else celebrating my son, who I love so much, our son, it was overwhelming. Christmas teaches us how to love. Christmas teaches us how to love well. Every day when we go out, we interact with people all over, people who are loved by, the, by the, their Father in Heaven. And we have the chance to share this love, to reflect this love. And there is power at work in this love. And we might be the only person that, has, that will love this person, that will be able to show this person God's love. And their father up, uh, father up in heaven will look down and smile. Love has the power to change the world. We celebrate Christmas because the kingdom of God is here in our midst, and the kingdom of God is at work. Of course, love doesn't always necessarily get us exactly what, I, what we want. There's still disasters, there's still, um, there's still illness, there's still death. There's still, there's still people who will return our love with hatred. There's no guarantees of a good outcome. We make ourselves very, very vulnerable when we love. And this is shown most perfectly by Jesus. Nobody loved as well as he did, and yet we know how he ended up, rejected and executed. So, at Christmas, we are aware that this is not the final word. As Paul writes to the Romans, if God is for us, who shall be against us? <coughs> and what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake I fa we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. At Christmas, at Christmas, we have the guarantee of the peace, hope, and joy that comes from God the Father. My friends, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas.